there's somebody in like, you know, Sydney, Australia right now with a book in their hand is thinking about the world along the same lines of the conversation that we're having. It's literally us manipulating and maneuvering 26 letters into different arrangements that might just liberate somebody. Literacy is, is freedom. And so, so many people was yelling, you know, and it was wild to me. I was like, and this is literature right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I was like, this is the importance of books. Hello, folks. Welcome to a special edition of The Freedom Takes, a podcast of the Million Book Project. Today, what we have is a conversation between me and writers Rachel Kushner and Susan Burton. This is a special collaboration with the National Book Foundation Lit for Justice series. Both Susan and Rachel's books were included in that project, which looked at contemporary work that addressed the issues of incarceration. This conversation was cool. I found that in talking to a memoirist in Susan Burton and a fiction writer in Rachel Kushner, we got at not just the commonalities of experience in terms of how we understand incarceration, but how the different mediums work to help push the same understanding of what prison means. But more importantly, I found it humbling to hear how each of us have been touched by the work of others, how that came up in the conversation. The point is this is a conversation not just about prison, but also about literature and what literature does to help us think differently about incarceration. Okay, here's the episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Natalie Green, the Public Programs Manager at the National Book Foundation. Tonight marks the final event of our three-year Literature for Justice program, with special thanks to our partner in books, The Million Book Project. Deepest gratitude to this evening's moderator, former Literature for Justice committee member, and selected author, and Million Book Project founding director, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and program manager, Tess Wheelwright for their collaboration. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our guests. Susan Burton founded a New Way of Life reentry project in 1998, dedicating her life to helping other women break the cycle of incarceration. Susan received the Citizen Activist Award from the Harvard Kennedy School, the Encore Purpose Prize, and the James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award and was named a top 10 CNN hero and one of 18 new civil rights leaders in the nation by the LA Times. Her memoir, Becoming Miss Burton, received a 2018 NAACP Image Award and the inaugural Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Rachel Kushner is the author of the internationally acclaimed novels, The Mars Room, The Flamethrowers, and Telex from Cuba as well as a book of short stories, The Strange Case of Rachel Kay. Her new book, The Hard Crowd, Essays 2000 to 2020, just came out, and everyone must go buy it. She's been a finalist for the Booker Prize, won the Prix Medici, which I'm probably butchering, and was a two-time finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. She's a Guggenheim Foundation Fellow and the recipient of the Harold D. Versell Memorial Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Her books have been translated into 26 languages. And our moderator, 
Reginald Dwayne Betts, is a poet and lawyer and the founding director of the Million Book Project. There are a lot of things he believes are important, but on some fundamental level, what feels more significant than the books he has published and the awards that he has won is that he's helped get three men out of prison so far. His books include his latest poetry collection, Felon, the memoir, A Question of Freedom, and two previous poetry collections, Shahid Reads His Own Palm and Bastards of the Reagan Era. In 2019, Betts won the National Magazine Award in Essays and Criticism for Getting Out, his New York Times Magazine essay that chronicles his journey from prison to becoming a licensed attorney. He holds a JD from Yale Law School. Enjoy the program. Thank you, Natalie. That was a great introduction of, of everybody. This is like truly esteemed company. And uh, and I should just say, starting out, one of the things I find really engaging about this is, you know, we're having a public facing conversation, but we're recognizing that that public uh, includes those who are incarcerated. I want to start with how you imagine your audience, because I know, Susan, you inspired me to imagine my audience being people on the inside and in, in a really robust way. So I think um, before we even break the ice, we're hearing your words. I want to ask, how do you imagine who your audience is? Uh, Rachel, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. When I was writing The Mars Room, my last novel, um, it was definitely a book for people inside prison and specifically in California, which is where I'm from, where I live. Um, people in prison had undergone with me a kind of multi-year process of friendship and teaching each other things. And um, I cared very much uh, that they find something in the book that felt true to them that they felt it was written to them, that it addressed them. I guess because of the way that the experience of the Mars Room taught me who my audience is, my audience for my new book is for everyone, including my friends inside prison, some of whom have really developed their own writing and have been publishing it all along. I've been developing in mine and sending it to them. So, you know, it... It, it should include everyone. However, I will say that in California, uh, Dwayne, I haven't had the same success getting my books to people and doing readings here because I, I was basically banned from doing readings at Central California Women's Facility, which th that is really where my people are. Um, it's the largest women prison. Susan knows it well. And I wasn't able to do readings there. But like when I go to other states or when I go to other countries, I'm often invited to read to people in prison, which are always the most exciting and rewarding readings that I do. You differ from me, man. I'm telling you, I love readings like that, but sometimes they are the most daunting and 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 haunting experiences that I've ever been a part of. And, and, and it's not for any other reason than like the stakes feel incredibly high every time I walk back inside those gates. But but let me ask uh, Susan the same question, and I want to frame it this way. Uh, me and you both know Michelle Jones, and she called yours one of her favorite books, right? And, and it makes me think, you know, is your book for women who are remaking their lives after prison or preparing to do so? Or um, 
or, or, or like, do you actually have a specific reader out there? What were you thinking about when you said, I need to tell like this story? Who did you imagine needing to hear the story you had to tell? In short, I wrote the book to uh, uh, put women in the conversation of ma- around mass incarceration. And then I, I printed a soft copy of the book intentionally sit with women in prisons and do readings and book signings with them. I felt like women, incarcerated women, was one of the most important audiences to read the book, that they, they, that they could understand that no matter how hard life is, you have to be willing for, to fight for your life. You can't just lay down and roll over and give up. And uh, to, to encourage and motivate them to stand with us, fight with us, walk with us, to, uh, to transform the discrimination and the, the, the lack of rights for those that have had uh, been incarcerated. And then that will be uh, part of what I read in my chapter uh, later in, uh, in a little while today. Now I feel self-conscious because <laughs> like I, I'm not the intermediary to, to like be pushing this conversation. I mean, I, I learn a lot from both of you. I learn a lot from your work. And so you guys got to forgive me for being in this role right now, particularly because um, I feel like the person who should be listening at your feet, particularly you, Susan, and, and I have, you know, and we know each other and and um and I've learned a lot from you and Rachel I've learned a lot from you writing and so how about this I'm gonna back up and I'm gonna stop talking and, and, and Rachel you know one of the things we do and I hope you guys both okay with me calling you by your first names but um one of the things we do with the Million Book Project and with the podcast we produce right is we have the writers read for you know five ten minutes because we recognize that a lot of folks in prison have never heard the story read to them and it's something that's intimidating about the page. That's not intimidating when you hear the voice telling the story. And so we want to commandeer this special event to say, let folks hear what the National Book Project was doing uh, over these past three years in terms of making sure books uh, about prison were being heard. So let's let's make these voices heard right now and these women seen, Rachel, by giving us a little bit of the Mars Room. Sure. Can I add something really quickly? I just wanted to respond, Dwayne, what you said. Uh, about finding audiences inside to be the most daunting. I do agree with that, but I also think that it's why I find those audiences the most rewarding. Like the nights I've gone to read, I mean, a reading that I did once at um, California Institution for Women, CIW, in a certain way was the most exciting night of my life, the most exciting reading I ever gave. And part of it was because people, when I walked in the room, they were not going to just go with it and trust that I had knowledge that was worth their time. They were looking at me like, we've seen a lot of fools come in here and think they can teach us something. And um, it was intimidating. Then again, um, I won them over. And by the end of the reading, they asked the best questions maybe I got in regard to the book, but also the questions were uh, sort of 
reflected like um, an x-ray vision of me standing there because I don't know, in my experience, people inside have social sophistication of a certain caliber that people outside often lack because they're so attuned to having to read people. No? No, yeah, I think that's true. And, and I'm, no, that's true. Let's leave it at that. That that is actually that's that's what I was what I was saying when it was daunting. It was you get that thing that um, this is like the hardest reading you're gonna give, and, and if they don't like it, they're gonna tell you they don't like it. You know. Um, that's right. But go ahead. Let's see, let's see what you got. Okay, I just chose. Um, I don't know if these are what you had in mind. I chose a couple very short sections that are basically just lists. So this is chapter three. And um, maybe I'll preface it by saying I put together these lists. Well, this list, chapter three, I put together um, after visiting 14 prisons in California. As a visitor, I should say. No orange clothing, no clothing in any shade of blue, no white clothing, no yellow clothing, no beige or khaki clothing. No green clothing, no red clothing, no purple clothing, no denim of any kind or color, no sweatpants or sweatshirts, no underwire or metal parts on brassieres. Ladies must wear brassieres. No sheer or see-through clothing, no layering, no exposed shoulders, no tank tops or cap sleeve tops, no low-cut tops no unnecessarily exposed body parts, no half shirts or low-waisted pants, no logos or prints, no Capri pants, no shorts, no skirts or dresses above the knee, no pants that are actually long shorts, no shirts without collars, all shirts must be tucked in, no jewelry, one tasteful wedding band is acceptable and will be inventoried by corrections officers at check-in no piercings, no bobby pins or metal clips in hair. Hair must be tidy and pulled back. No shower sandals, no flip-flops, no sunglasses, no jackets, no overshirts, no hoodies, nor any clothing with a hood, no tight clothing. Clothing must not be excessively loose or baggy. Appearance, hair, and clothing must be professional and in good taste. Those who arrive to a state facility in inappropriate attire will be turned away and their inmate visit canceled. Um, chapter eight. And this is a list that I wrote. Um, I guess these are kind of almost like poems, a list that I wrote after spending a lot of time uh, at Twin Towers, which is our L.A. County jail complex. And it's about half a mile from where I am right now. Please provide employment history over last five years. Please be thorough and detailed. On the job experience section of the form, the suspect wrote that she had experience as an employee. The intake officer explained that this would not be sufficient. On the transcript of the suspect's interview with homicide detectives, when asked what kind of work he normally did, the suspect answered recycling quality control, she wrote, for type of work. I'm an employee, he told them, but seemed unable to specify what kind. Recycler, maintenance crew, retail, wholesale, 
flyer distribution, warehouse distribution, dollar store, Dollar Tree, distribution warehouse, Walmart. He said he handed out flyers. He had written Recycler. They both worked with a crew that handed out flyers. He delivered free newspapers, but not regularly. He worked at a distribution warehouse. She wrote Quality Control. He said he worked part-time helping a friend who cleaned dollar stores after hours. Cashier, unemployed, not currently employed. QC, which he explained, met quality control. Truck unloader, package handler. He unpacked crates, he told them, at a distribution warehouse. When asked what she did for a living, the suspect said she worked. Recycling, he'd written. He brought recycling to a redemption center, he explained. Recycler, 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 recycler. Redemptions, he told them. Redeemer was what she wrote. The suspect said she had mostly made her living by collecting bottles and cans. Yeah, now they 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 did both sound like poems, and it was interesting. Um, <laughs> I once went to visit one of my homeboys. He was he, somebody I was locked up with, um, and I said I'm gonna go visit him, and. And I go there and I'm filling out the form and it says, uh, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I was thinking, how do you define convicted? You know, I'm just going to say no. And I said no. And, I, and I'm and i going through the visiting room and they turn me away. They said, you can't have on jeans. Now, mind you, I had been locked up and I had visitors wear jeans. So this was completely new to me. I had driven three hours to see this cat. and I, And it was just my luck that I had some dress clothes in my trunk. And so I changed my clothes in the parking lot, afraid that somebody was going to see me changing my clothes. And then I, and then, and, and, you know, and then try to put the press on me for doing that. Then I went back in and I had a bunch of change thinking that you could use the change to, you know, buy stuff. And they were like, no change is, is allowed. And what was interesting is I had been locked up and I knew the experience of being locked up, but going through that, it didn't make me feel like I was back in prison, but it made me understand something about the whole trauma of trying to return. And it made me feel a different kind of kinship with my homie. We had some questions from these women at Lockhart, and somebody said this about the Mars room. This woman named Tiffany, she says uh, she's locked up at a, at a, at a women's prison in in Texas. She says, when you're in prison, this is your family. These people are your family. You learn everything about them since you spend all this time with them. And and I think about Rachel's book and how she is making that real. But I think about your work, Susan, and how um, that idea of family didn't stop when you got released. That that feeling of family that exists in the book, you pushed that home. I mean, you still, all of your work is, is tied to that. And I wonder, what's the source of that? There's this connection that I have, you know, with formerly incarcerated women and just people in general that I literally feel their humanity, their potential, their desires, uh, their love, their anger. And, um, that sort of stimulates me or drives me to want to actually see it in practice and to remove and dismantle all of the barriers 
and all of the blocks and all of the the um the inhumanity of our of our community of our children of our 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 our, our people uh so uh that's what you know the connection is and then i feel really connected to formerly incarcerated and incarcerated women because i know what it feels like to be stuck in a place where people can't see your humanity they 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 have they can't even have an inkling they won't allow you an inkling of an idea of your potential this kind of blocks your integrity you know this unblocks your blossoming into this 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 full abundant and robust person i remember uh duane one day i was riding down central avenue leaving the office and i looked over at this man on the bus stop and there was an intense pain that came from him and just descended on me and into me. And I was like, oh God, I can't, I can't handle this. And it dissipated. But I believe that was a moment where I was being allowed to see how immense and intense the connection to my fellow human being can be. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think both of you are, are storytellers. And so this next question is for both of you. Um, it's about permission, because, you know, I think permission is involved in all of the work that we do, both in terms of telling our own story, but in terms of telling the stories of others. And so I want to ask you both, who do you think has permission? to tell stories about women who are in prison or who have been in prison? And and where does that permission come from as writers? And if you want me to ask the same question, answer the same question, I will too, because I, I deeply believe that my poetry is, is fully invested in telling more stories than my own. And I'm often conflicted about whose stories um, I have permission to tell, including friends and, and family members. And so, you know, I ask that with, with true sincerity, recognizing that a lot of our work is walking around with the stories of others um, and, and bringing them to life and bringing them into the air. So I'll ask you first, Rachel, and then and then I'll return to you, Susan. And after that, I'll ask you to read a bit, if, if that's okay, Susan. In terms of who has permission, I don't see sort of clear-cut rules and rather um, like a set of commitments and an engagement that I make and then make again uh, all the time in terms of, I guess, what it would be that I would have to serve or offer as a writer in a world where we do not have one common fate in the way our society is structured, um, if that's a way of putting it. But maybe I could answer it instead by explaining why I authorized myself to write The Mars Room, if that's what I did, um, or what led me to want to try to write a book that would feel true to my friends inside. And I think that part of it 
is from childhood. Um, we had a kind of um, honorary family member who uh, is now deceased, but was my parents' best friend. And he had gone to prison at the age of 17 for robbing a train and had spent a decade there. Um, and I would say had a kind of somewhat successful re-entry in that he was trained as a machinist while he was in prison. Um, but it very much tempered who he was, you know? I mean, tempered is the wrong word. It formed him. And I was deeply, acutely aware of this as a child. And then um, in junior starting in junior high, I had friends who were kind of shunted off into youth authority in California, and then later did hard time. And then for whatever, you know, for different reasons, prison ended up becoming their life, um, doing long sentences and dying there. So I was exposed to that world to such a degree that it kind of, for me, I was haunted by it and wanted to understand it. And then I started to feel like as a Californian, as a person who lives here in a county in our state that is one of the big senders, as they call it, meaning so many people from uh, metropolitan Los Angeles are being put on buses and sent up the Central Valley to these prisons that are disappeared from view for middle-class people because they're in industrial farming. I feel like that is a serious topic for a novelist and somebody who wants to write a contemporary novel, wants to write about this world that we inhabit now really needs to deal with it on some level, in some form. And I felt I was up for that challenge and asked people I had connection to through social activism that I do um, if they would teach me things about their lives inside. Um, and they did. And I can't say that I'm authorized to write what I have written. I can only say that um, I think that anybody who's going to write about a group of people that they don't like have a natural connection to in the sense that they maybe haven't spent. Yeah, what's going on? Hey, what's up, hey hold on one second. So, so this is completely awkward, right? But somebody from prison just called me. Oh my God. Amazing. And, and I, and I had to answer the phone yeah. just cause you know, people don't get the phone all the time. So let me just, just tell him what's going on. So sure. that, say, sorry, hold on one second, guys. Yo, what's happening, man? I get those global telling calls. Do you, Susan? People call you? Yeah, people call me. Um, but um, unless they have uh, minutes, then I don't get to talk to them because I refuse to allow people to profit off of my pain if I can control it. I'm sorry, Susan. Can you say that again? Yeah, yeah. She asked me, do I get those global tailing calls? And I said, I, I do get them from time to time, but I just refuse to be exploited by telephone companies. So I refuse to put money in, in that telephone system that, ex, that exploits us. Um, I refuse to put money on people's books because uh, they will uh, take a big portion of that money 
So what I will do is I will write letters all day long. A matter of fact, I just went to the uh, to the store and I bought $50 worth of cards that I'm sending to people. And I will, I will send you a $250 box all day long. But, but I'm, I'm not going to let the prison. I just refuse to be exploited by them anymore. So um, I, I won't take a collect call. I, I appreciate what you just said, Susan. Like, it's important to be reminded that I'm participating in a totally exploitative system, but I'm, I'm willing to keep my global telling account open and active all the time because I feel like it's very dynamic what's happening here right now in terms of people um, being able to maybe have a shot at clemency. And so a lot of people need to be able to um, communicate with their public defender, their post-conviction lawyer, but a lot of the counties can't afford a Global Telink account. San Bernardino cannot afford an account, you know, so people can call me and I can call their lawyer. I like to think of it as we in this world where too many times, sometimes we allow people to tell us it's just one thing. And I think what I've learned from you, Susan, more than anybody else is, yo, you get out there in the world and, and you do the work and, and, and you make it impossible for somebody to just um, try to assert, you know, in your presence, uh, a, a simplistic version of what the work is. I, I am always impressed by how, how um, I don't know, how you, you just got this uh, gravitas that comes from not fronting with it and that comes from having you know a, a, a true reputation for recognizing a problem and then working to solve that problem but i i would love to hear what you got to say about permission and audience so based on what i was experiencing as a woman you know as a formerly incarcerated woman and looking and understanding the impact that uh, the mass incarceration of women women was having on my community and of communities across the nation, um, I gave myself permission and steadied myself to go back through my life to be able to tell the path to incarceration from as far back as I could remember. And what I can say is that it was hard actually going back and visiting and reliving all of those places and and circumstances and events. So I gave myself permission to do that because I felt I needed to do it. Not so much for me, but for the world and for the nation and for all the other women who did not have a voice. I write about my story, but I write about it in the context of all of us. I get so many letters saying, your story is my story, and this happened to me, and that happened to me, and this is where I was at, and, 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 and this is what I want to do, and this is what I want to be. But there were, were individuals uh, in my book that I also wrote about, and when, um, you know, I have a co-author, Carrie Lynn. When I 
when I, uh, you know, there's two sides to every story. So I would say my side of the story, we would write my part of what that individual meant. And then we would, uh, 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 we would contact the individual and have them put their part of what the role in their lives and whatever we're interested in our time in my life that they were writing about. And then I sent that story to them, that part of the book that they were mentioned in and asked them to read it for accuracy and ask for their blessing and permission to put it in the book. And so, uh, you know, that way we had um, a, a rounded out, you know, there's, there's two sides, there's, there's three sides, right? The right side, the wrong side, and the true side. So we hope we got two sides between the two parts of telling a, 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 of the story. So every character that's mentioned in my book, who was living at the time the book was published, uh, had the opportunity to read their, their section and, and to, um, you know, put a blessing on it. Uh, and I asked for a release from them to, to, to use their name and, and, and to put that part of the, the, the story uh, with the, uh, in their name in the book. I got to say, that's a really ethical approach to to writing. I mean, it's almost, I, I guess, Rachel, you appreciate this because it feels like really journalistic. And I know a lot of people who write memoir, um, they, they, they cop at the beginning to change the names. I mean, I, I changed names, you know, and, um, and my book might've been much better had I reached out to my friends. Um, one, it would have forced me to figure out how to reach out to them because this is pre Facebook when I wrote mine. And so there was no like, like social media to contact folks who you had or their family members who you hadn't seen in a long time. But I, I mean, listening to you say that, it makes me think really deeply about how I'll approach this next book as as a way to, you know, actually really talk to people who end up getting voiced in the book. But um, we would love to hear you you read a bit, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So um, this is chapter 20 uh, that I'm reading from, and that chapter is The Wall of No. Uh, and some of the numbers have changed since the writing of this book. It's been a few years. Uh, and actually, I'm working on my next book, Dwayne. Um, so, yeah, pretty cool. The more women came through a new way of life, the more I saw the same story played out again and again. I watched women being denied private housing, unable to rent an apartment when faced with the box indicating a felony conviction. I waited with them through the paperwork, the bureaucracy of the LA County Department of Children and Family Services as they tried to reunite with their kids. I saw them morning after morning, iron their sole business outfit and then drop them off. And then I dropped them off and pick them up from job interview after job interview. The outcome of rejection almost always the same, despite their capabilities. Capabilities didn't matter. Neither did skills, past experience, or aptitude. The sum of everything else blotted out by a criminal conviction. No surprise, the parole office 
wasn't giving people any type of real assistance. Out of desperation, some women tried to get social security disability benefits, pointing to how they've been heavily medicated in prison, so they must have a mental illness issue, right? To me, this was no solution. These people with abilities to have them strung along on a meager payout was basically relegating them to a life of poverty and uselessness. Naively, I had thought that if I could provide shelter and a nutrient environment, everything else would fall into place. But many days, it felt like a new way of life was base camp at Mount Everest. For so many years, I too had come up against these seemingly insurmountable barriers. But I'd done a good job of convincing myself that my failing was personal, that it was all on my shoulders. Now a bigger picture was emerging. If you got locked up, you get locked out. It didn't matter that you paid your debt to society, nor did it matter how hard you were trying to get your life back together. A criminal history was like a credit card with interest. So what if you paid off the balance? The interest still kept occurring and occurring and occurring and occurring. Yet I, I remained determined. All over the city, I drove women looking for jobs are tracking copies of birth certificates, are filing for social security cards. With all this running around, gas upkeep on my old Ford Escort was expensive. And I soon began doling out bus fare, which led to a bigger issue. I was running out of money. When Stan from Hop told me about the first African-American Methodist Episcopal Church in South Central, gave bus tokens. I showed up there right away. But before issuing me tokens, they asked if a new way of life was a 501c3. I paused and said, what's a 501c3? Oh, that's a, that, that was a mean ending too. I got to say that was a flair for ending, you know. Um, so this is why I wanted to bring Dr. Ruthie Gilmore up abolitionist, a geographer. I say she's a geographer, and, and for the audience, I, I'm, I'm going to say I don't fully understand what a geographer is, except that it means that she is, um, as, a, as, a, as a scholar, is concerned with space and concerned with the landscape, and particularly thinking about the geographies of prison, which I think me and Susan know intimately, but Rachel, you brought up too in terms of the location of prisons and what it does to communities. And her work is, is far-ranging, um, and, and, and quite influential. But what I want to ask you is, uh, and I'll start with you, Susan, is the piece that you just read and you talk about the collateral consequences and you talk about believing that just having a place to stay um, and being nurtured will be enough. But then it's not enough because of everything that happens post-incarceration when people constantly want to hold you down. Um, the question I want to ask you is, do you believe an idea like abolition could cut at those collateral consequences that follow us. You know, um, would you make the case for abolition based on the fact that um, that without it, our society has proven incapable of believing a person's prison sentence is done? 
as it exists to my eyes today, uh, there needs to be a total transformation of the hearts and minds uh, of this of this nation. There needs to be an opening and a connection, sort of like the connection that I had with the man at the bus stop. I mean, right now, uh, Dwayne, we're in the midst of a trial where, you know, there's nothing but the, the entrenched depth of racism and uh, power that folks have over other fo folks that was displayed. Uh, there's the uh, not being able to see the potential or the, the, the humanity of this man and uh, probably this entire community by those that are, are in power, those that rose up out of the, the history of this nation. So even with abolition you know, of prisons, there's something deeper that has to happen in this nation and in this world. I mean, I probably would say too um, that a lot of us who who aren't uh, who live in check to check, or who barely not live in check to check, would not have seen that man. You know, I just I just finished reading um, Richard Wright's "The Man Who Lived Underground." And and what you get in that novel is 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 really somebody responding to what you're talking about, and 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 escape is to go underground. But um, but I like what you said earlier. You gotta fight. 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 And um, and and running is not is not gonna settle like anything in these times. Um, Rachel, what would you say to that? You know, what are your feelings about abolition and and, and how we might move forward in this space? Yeah, I was just thinking about how whenever I talk to Ruthie Gilmore, um, she makes me feel hopeful. And and she's I don't think she's unrealistic, but for her, the way that she approaches abolition is all about presence of the kinds of things that Susan rightly points out that we need which is a completely transformed society. Um, I go through my own ups and downs, I would say, with how hopeful I am about transformative change. It's even lately, it's day to day. We live in a really convulsive time. Um, but like, for instance, I just learned this morning that um, a person named uh, Ricky uh, Blue Sky, a Native American transgender person who's been locked up in Chowchilla for decades has been granted clemency. And according to some friends who have worked really hard for years and years now to see that happen for this individual, it's the first time that a transgender person in California state prison system has been granted clemency. And they're just going up against so much. People in women's prisons are basically told you have to look like a woman when you go before the parole board. Um, so when I get news like that, I feel good. I feel like there are openings here. We have a new district attorney in Los Angeles, George Gascone, who, if not an abolitioner, as I would put it, uh, like us, is you employing some abolitionist principles, some, like he's not going to 
uh, try any minor in adult court, no matter what they've done. And so making those kinds of very firm stands are going to, you know, I think can chip away at the monstrosity of the system. But then there are other days seeing what this pandemic has done to the huge gaping expanse between rich and poor here in California, which if you adjust for housing costs has the highest poverty rate in America, um, it's totally devastating and shattering. And I don't know. And I, I think about um, the moral stamina that's being required of us who are doing this work and it changes from day to day. Yeah, I don't know if you feel this way, Rachel, but I often feel like as a writer, I'm constantly not doing enough work. You know, I feel like as a writer, I live in a world of um, of ideas. And so I'm constantly trying to find ways to do things on the ground because it really is hard to do stuff on the ground. I do want to say that um that that's the thing that's compelling about about your book, Susan, but also about your work is you got a clarity of vision and and a, and and a, and a um and a, and an impressive level of um of moral stamina and commitment. But I have two final questions as we come to a close. Um, one is, you know, the Million Book Project is 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 predicated on the idea that freedom begins with a book. That really, in a lot of ways, stories are more effective than to to build those bridges um, than sometimes arguments are, you know, really. And so I wonder what both of you might say about the role of of telling really compelling stories and and trying to um to repair that that thing that um that so many of us recognize is like deeply wrong with this this country um in terms of like poverty in terms of dealing with mental health in terms of addressing violence in terms of um addressing addiction in terms of um you know how many people we lock away i wonder what you think the role of um of, of story is and 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 thinking about um, what to do next. I just want to say that it's just a huge part of it, different types of stories. It's not just stories, but there's uh, concrete facts in stories and information and stats. Rachel just read off this whole visiting list reality that probably a lot of people didn't even understand or know about, you know, you conveyed that you know, there's these facts, but there's also this emotional turmoil and hardship and pain going through those visitor gates and having that door clank on you and sitting in that visiting room with that with that with that bad food that is a treat for the prisoner. But stories are really, really important. And you know, I have to take a moment and say that, you know, I I was very naive when I started a new way of life. I just felt like if, if women had a chance when they got off that bus, like I had gotten out of, off that bus so many times before that maybe everything would change. And, you know, but, you know, the, the wall of no showed me that it wasn't about getting off the bus. It was about a dismantling uh, a discrimination and, and racism and all the other things that are a part of this country. But Ruthie Wilson Gilmore and Craig Gilmore, I spent years with in California and they brought my thinking so much around 
what had happened and what continues to happen, not just structurally, but, but you know, uh, uh, personally. I remember, and you know, when I told them about the day I was expelled from school because my dress was too short. It was an inch too short and I got suspended from school and I write about it in the book. And then Re Ruthie, you know, reflected with me and said, that's the same time they were integrating schools in the South. And this little white woman, the principal, expelled me and thought I shouldn't be in a book, in a dress from books. Maybe her daughter should be in a dress from books, but not me. And I paid a handsome price for that dress. But the reader has to read about that in the book. Hey, but I, I, I will say, I mean, we can't escape it. The, the the personal effects that we have on each other by listening to each other, by telling our stories to people who yeah. we care about, and by letting them drop drop jewels on us. I mean, I, I think um, I'm gonna tell Ruthie. I'm gonna be like, yeah, you know, you just you just came in. It was the fourth person on our panel. <laughs> but uh, she birthed my thinking. She was a part of hatching a broader analysis of, of, of the world in me. Before I, I, I let Rachel talk, you should know that, like, I sent my book, you said you wrote it for women. And you said you wrote it to make women visible. But you remember when I sent it to my homeboy, and he was like, oh, no, you know what? Can I just, I want to say this to to, to Miss Susan Burton. I wanted to know what the book meant to me. And he wrote me that note, and I passed it on. And when you sent that, that case of books down there, you had it was Dillwyn Correctional Center in in Virginia. You had you know a, a two dozen men reading your book, thinking about their mothers, you know, thinking about their sisters, thinking about their girlfriends, and you birthed the kind of consciousness in them. So you know, we say each one teach one. I, I think it, it's it's a real truth to that statement that um that I've witnessed. And yeah, listeners, if you inside, we sending a book into you. If you're not inside, you need to pick the book up and read it. Uh, Rachel, tell us what you think about stories. And then I got one cool question to end with. So there's a book by Marguerite Duras, The Lover, that I started sending to a few friends in prison a few years ago. And I I wasn't really sure how that book would go over. But for whatever reason, it just became hugely popular and people would pass it around. And it's not simple literature, but uh, it has a vibe to it, I think, that people loved. And um, there's this line by Marguerite Duras, a life is no small matter that I was thinking of when you asked that question. And when I ask myself, what is story and why does it matter in this larger project where we're up against, as Susan so brilliantly puts, the wall of no, a life is no small matter to me means lives, in fact, are epic and they have epic qualities to them of drama and gravitas and profundity. I mean, everybody's life. And the ability to imagine the epic nature of other people's life for me is part of how I orient myself ethically in the world among other people is to try to imagine their experience and to have some just feel for the textures of difference and what people face, what they're up against. All right. Now that's real. All right. So I'm going to ask you both about the last sentence in your book. I think, um, 
yeah, I think um, I think it's powerful to ask folks to reflect on how on what they chose to leave a reader with. Uh, so this is what you say, Susan. You say, uh, I smiled to myself and then got to work to make sure Beverly had a bed waiting for her. How would you reflect on, on like the, the decision to end the book there? But what would you tell her? Because cause I feel like that is uh, that could be your your mission statement right there. So I wonder how would you reflect on that to to our listeners, like the decision to end the book there? Everybody, everybody deserves an opportunity. Everybody should have an opportunity. Um, and to not judge so harshly, to shut the door and exile somebody out is, it's unconscionable. And that's what happened so much, you know, because of the hard nature of how we've been trained to think about othering and the deserving and the undeserving. It takes courage and it takes love to keep it open. And then what I can say is that the more that I get it, the more that I give it, uh, and the more courageously I act and, and step through fears and doubts and what have you, the more I get. So it's like a never ending waterfall if I just keep using it up and keep using it up and keep using it up and keep giving it up. Now, see, you are, you'll see what I did here, right? Because I'm going to read this last, and I got to read the last graph of Rachel's to get the whole point. But you'll see in my head how you just actually explain the end of her book in a really beautiful way. Um, but Rachel, I'm going to let you explain it too. But you say, um, I gave him life. It is quite a lot to give. It is the opposite of nothing. And the opposite of nothing is not something. It is everything. Uh, and you talk about why you chose to end there. How would you just like reflect on that? You know? Yeah. So the character who's speaking, Romy Hall, um, has been given two life sentences plus an enhancement of six years, um, which is actually a sentence that was based on uh, the sentence that was given to a friend of mine who's not Romy, not the character's not based on her at all, but traveling through the world disconnected from friends who have sentences like that, I was forced to think about how a person can see her life as having a form of meaning that cannot be clipped and curtailed and killed by the state, even as they have quote unquote condemned her to a life in prison. And she has a child She's separated from that child. She's looking up at the night sky and sees herself as part of a continuum that is so much vaster and more mysterious than the California Department of Corrections can comprehend or you know, be in a position of control over that in a certain way, for a moment, her life can take on meaning that is outside of that world and bigger than it. Yeah. I, I, we usually end in, in my podcast, uh, the freedom takes the podcast of the million book project with a question about what is the phrase freedom begins with a book mean to you. But actually I think that you guys have covered it so well. You know, I think that you both have articulated um, how freedom can begin with a book, but all of the work that comes after 
um, you begin to imagine that freedom. And, and so much of it is showing up. So I am grateful to both of you showing up today with me, dropping jewels. I am grateful for our personal connections. Um, and also, I just say again, Susan, seriously, I am I'm grateful for you pushing me and, and for you taking me seriously. And, 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 you know, a lot of times, I mean, when we get praised by this world, it is real easy to, to think it's the world that first told us the gift we had. But it was always people in prison that first told us the gift we had, that I had, you know. And in terms of the Million Book Project, it was you who first planted the seed that far more was possible than I ever considered. So I am deeply grateful. Um, I thank you both. And, uh, and I'm sure everybody who's watching this has just enjoyed the last hour they spent with us. Thanks for joining us for The Freedom Takes, a new podcast from The Million Book Project. We'll be back next time with another contemporary writer. You can find out more about The Million Book Project and subscribe to our newsletter at millionbookproject.org. Our initiative was made possible by a generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This podcast was produced by Aaron slomsky Pritz, with production assistance by Tess Wheelwright and Molly Audger. Theme music by Reed Searching.